And what is good, guys? It is your Boston Brit, and I am back with a brand new episode of the Garden Party with my co-host as well, the man, the myth, the legend, the basketball ass. How are you, Josh? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Uh, once again, it's great to have to be adorned with that fantastic nickname, um, and it's an honour to be uh, in the presence of greatness. <laughs> it is indeed. And to be honest, for, for all of you that don't know why Josh is called the basketball ass, Many moons ago, on one of our first episodes, Josh wore a NBA T-shirt where the camera, you know, cut off most of the association of the NBA Basketball Association, and it just had basketball ass. So that is the whole reason why it's called the basketball ass. Yeah. Anyway, it's, got... it's, it's just a classic visual gag. <laughs> anyway, we've got an insane guest of us today, Josh, haven't we? So should we bring him in? Yes, Absolutely. Now, all of you know him, or all of you, especially in America, will know him, um, and most of the Celtics fan base will, as the voice of the Boston Celtics. Um, it's, Mr. it's Mr. Sean Grande. How are you, man? I'm doing great, guys. I, I don't know. I never had a T-shirt mishap like that. Or, uh, so I'm fortunate in this because it only takes one, right? And then you're, you're branded with it forever. Exactly. If, if people cared enough, I would be memed. I suppose. But Max, hey, listen, the Max at the worst moment in the history of to make a mistake, Max at the end of the finals in 2008, you know, grabbed the basketball on the court, screamed, I got the ball. And that became his legacy for, you know, that's that's forever. Right. Like Max yeah. is remembered for game seven and 84 and for I got the ball when they won in 2008. I mean, I don't think it's quite the same level for Josh. <laughs> maybe one day, Josh, maybe one day. Yeah, that's my aspiration. <laughs> Okay, Sean. So let's jump straight into it. Well, our first question is, you know, how did you get into basketball? Because obviously you are the voice of the Celtics. How did you get into basketball? Well, it's, it's pretty funny because I didn't know when I was coming up which sport I would end up doing. I'd always wanted to be a major league announcer. That was my dream. And in the U.S., you've got the four big sports and you've got, you know, baseball and football, hockey and basketball. And I didn't know where I'd end up because I had done a lot of them, but I knew basketball was my clear cut number four. Like the other three were basically tied for first. Uh, I had done I'd primarily been a hockey guy uh, and a hockey announcer and, you know, coming up through college hockey is pretty big in the Northeast United States. And it looked like I was headed for the NHL and I'd always loved baseball, but there wasn't as much anyway. And the opportunity in 1998, the major league job that opened up, it's funny. It was another forgotten part of history is that I almost ended up coming right to the Celtics after uh, Spencer Ross in 1997 because I was working at the radio station where the Celtics games were done. but And they were all set to pass it on to me. And then when Rick Pitino came in, they wanted to go high profile with everything and everything changed. And they didn't want some 25-year-old kid that nobody knew. They wanted to get an experienced announcer who had been there and been in the NBA. And that changed it. So from that point on, I'm like, all right, I got to go somewhere else. And the jobs that were open that year, there were a couple in the NHL, but the Minnesota Timberwolves TV job was open in the NBA and I auditioned in about a two week span. It all happened. And my life has been, I know I, I realize now I'm going to be a basketball guy forever, but up until I was 26, 27, when that call came, I was probably going another way. And that's what I always tell anyone that wants to do this for a living, be ready to be able to do anything, whatever, whatever sport, you know, you can do. The answer is always no. And it's funny talking to you guys in the UK because 
And I won't, I try very hard not to say the word soccer when I'm in, when I'm doing fights that are in the UK that are, cause I do broadcasts that are all around the world. I, I know it's a dirty word because when you're in London or you're in Dublin or you're in Belfast, wherever you are, to use that word, everybody on the crew in the truck and the audio guys, everybody is, you know, local from there. So I try very hard not to use that word, but you have to in the States because no one knows what you're talking about if you don't. But I got a call once to do a game, an MLS game. And the call, and this is 1998, I think it was a World Cup year because the regular announcer was doing some World Cup stuff. And they said, can you do soccer? And I said, and the answer, as I tell every 20-something who wants to be into broadcasting, the answer is always what, guys? Yes. Yes. The answer is always, can you do so? Yeah, sure I can. I had never been to a game. I had never, whatever. But the answer is yes. This is how I ended up doing MMA years later without having it. You have to throw yourself into it and, and tell the stories. But uh, yeah, so I've ended up as the basketball guy and I was in Minnesota for three years. And the other part of that story is I thought I'd be there forever. And my wife at the time was from Boston and wanted to come home and the opportunity to do, I wasn't really crazy about leaving TV to do radio, but again, Max called me at my house in Minnesota and said, listen, I think we'd be really good together. I really want you to consider this. And two months later, I uh, started as the voice of the Celtics, thought I'd do that for a couple of years and Max and I would go to TV and here we are 21 years later and still cranking out the hits. So would you say that the kind of, you said obviously that one of the key things for young broadcasters is to just be ready and always say yes to these challenges. Um, but as well as honing your broadcast skills, a large part of the kind of way into it is just being ready as a kind of Swiss army knife of all sports. You have to have a working knowledge of each sport um, with the ability to talk about it, at least at a respectable level. And I've always believed that a lot of successful sportscasters have gone on to news and mm -hmm. other things because sports is live. It's the hardest thing to cover in a lot of ways. It may not be the most important thing, but it's as difficult to cover as anything because of the live nature of it, because it can take on all these different directions. It's why I think people have been successful going on to other things. But I so said, the answer is always yes. And I learned that at the, you know, the middle stage of my career, and I bring up the MMA thing because when they called me and asked me if I was interested in doing MMA, I literally knew nothing about it. And six months later, or, you know, a couple of months later, I'm the number two play-by-play -play guy in the entire sport, you know, for, for the second, I'm the play-by-play -play guy for the second biggest company in the sport, because at some, you have to keep, there's a, the lessons are for, in your twenties, say yes to everything. And in your forties, you know, the answer is say yes to everything. Keep growing, you know, evolve or die. And that was a point where I had done Celtics for a long time. Everybody knew me in the NBA, but you know what? Like in the MMA world, that was jumping off a cliff because not only was I starting from scratch, there was a danger element to it too, because those fans who love their sport so much and rightly so they were, they're just waiting for someone like me coming from the always oh, coming from the NBA. He's big shot NBA. They were waiting, right? Like this. Yeah, let's bring them in here. We'll tear them apart. And those are the people you have to like winning that fan base over, which is not about winning them over. It's just about doing the job right. Eventually people go, yeah, you know what? This guy's okay. I get a kick out of him actually because he works hard and he respects the sport. So the lesson, I'm sure it's a lesson that goes in whatever your line of work is to, and in life in general to keep challenging yourself and not to grow stale. But that was, you know, something you take something from your twenties that, that always applies later on. Yeah, well, there's there's your lesson. Yeah, uh, there's your lesson there, young listeners. Um, anyway, so the second don't one, wear a t-shirt. Don't wear a t-shirt that people could, you know, 
Like, make sure you look at all the letters. Oh, that's bro- broadcasting number one. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, though, bad, 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 publi- bad publicity is always good publicity, no? That's, that's I mean, what they say. Uh, Not in a, in a cancel culture world, when you're on the air for three hours a night and there's always somebody sitting there with a keyboard waiting to, you know, it's not, it's not the way it used to be. Like any publicity is good publicity, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, increasingly dangerous, tiptoeing, tightrope world. <laughs> well, to be fair, you kind of briefly answered my second question where, you know, I said, how did you get into the play-by-play role? I mean, is it something that you wanted to do while you were growing up? I mean, uh, most Celtics fans, I mean, I, I can imagine you sat in your back garden when you were younger with a cardboard box as your table, with your mum's hairbrush as your microphone and just commentating on what anything comes by. I mean, how, how did it all necessarily come about for you? How, how did it grow into this, you know, how what, you're sat talking to two people from the UK right now? Like, how did it even get to this stage, you know? Well, I had great plans to play second base for the Mets, as I'm sure people have great plans to play, you know, be a midfielder for a Manchester United, right? Like, well, you have great plans. And then real life happens, right? And eventually, especially as a kid growing up in the city, where like your knees are gone by the time you're 12, they're all like scraped up from playing on concrete your whole life. And eventually it sinks in that you're not going to make it to the major leagues as a player. And how was I, I couldn't imagine another life for myself at 10, 11, 12 years old. So how was I going to make it? And you know what? You're exactly right. I don't know about the hairbrush. I don't know if I ever used the hairbrush, but somewhere there exists a audio tape of me calling a football game on thank like off the TV and uh, an American football game and my mother calling me to Thanksgiving dinner. Like you can like hear her in the background. I haven't heard this tape for years. I know it exists somewhere, but at five years old, because it was what I always want, you know, this was sort of the, the backup plan, I guess, to, to playing with broadcasting. It always came natural to me. I always have great affection for the announcers that, you know, sort of helped raise me. They made the memories of my childhood and, you always say one day it wouldn't that be cool if you can make memories for somebody else's childhood. And then now in real life, when people come up to you and say, oh, I've been listening to you since I was a kid. I'm like, shut up. I'm not that old. Like, you know, whatever, but you know, but, yeah, careful what you wish for, but <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, but absolutely. I've always, it was something I always wanted to do. No doubt. So when, when obviously you didn't use the hairbrushes, as you mentioned, uh, but when you did eventually, what were some of the methods in terms of learning when you were growing up with that enthusiasm? So would you turn the volume down on the TV and do play-by-play live? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I remember doing like, and, you know, like recording yourself doing it. And then, you know, when you go off to school and you go off to college, uh, and I went to college in Boston and it got a little more serious and there were a lot more hockey games to do and things to do. And then you're just sort of working on your craft all the time. And it's funny because you're, you're imprinted by the announcers that you listen to. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like silly putty where you, you squeeze that imprint right on there. And then eventually it slowly morphs into what you're going to be. And it's the, you know, when you're doing, when you come up in New York, you grow up in New York, like I did, a lot of announcers sound like Marv Albert. Like you take some of, you know, Marv Albert, or I listened to Sam Rosen doing New York Rangers games and Tim McCarver doing the Mets and Bob Murphy calling the games on Mets games on radio and things like that. You take all that and it's, that's how you're taught how to do it. Cause there are very few, there's a lot more instruction now. So there are sports casting camps. There are, there's instruction for everything, but a lot more for that. I think in my, back in my day, when I'm going to college, it's almost 30 years ago, you're starting to, you have to figure it out for yourself. And so you start with the lessons that you taught yourself by sort of mimicking, or this is the way this is done. 
And then eventually your personality takes those tools. And like anything in life, you just have to do it over and over and over again. And you do as many games as you can. And you take uh, back when we used tape recorders before things were digital, you'd bring them out to a baseball field and find a college baseball game that was going on. And you'd sit there in the stands and the first people are staring at you. And then after a couple of innings, they kind of enjoy you calling the game. Uh, and that's sort of how you do it. You have to be a little bit blind with purpose that this is, this is what I want and this is how to, how to get better. But there's just, what I always tell people is find a way to do it, find a game. And you know what? A volleyball game going on with three people watching and doing game seven of the NBA finals, it's still a game. There's mm-hmm. still a story to be told and you're still communicating what's happening. It's the same skill set, just like a free throw is a free throw, whether it's in the, in the park or it's in game seven of the NBA finals. So hone your craft any way you can. So that obviously is a lot of kind of hours of work and practice. And you mentioned the concepts of camps, people going in and strategically planning how to improve, et cetera. But how much of it would you say is the personality that you mentioned, that side of things? How, How much of it do you think is true that you maybe just have to have it? I think there's, there's certainly some of that. Uh, I always, this is when it comes to, and play by play and being on air are two very different things in the States. And I, I don't know as much how it is out there culturally in terms of sports casting, but here in the last 20, 30 years, it's not like people don't want to do play by play, but the on-camera talking head positions, whether it's, it's, you know, it's sports center doing, doing sports news, the talking head shows where that's become more glamorous, glamorous positions, more on, you know, FaceTime on camera, things like that. So people are, you know, gravitating towards that, but you have to, you got to figure out, you got to know what it is you want to do, first of all, and, and work on that. But I think in terms of play by play is what I was saying about your question. Preparation in terms of play by play is everything. The greatest announcer in the world cannot call a good game. If he is completely unprepared, the worst announcer in the world cannot call a bad game. If he is, he or she is immaculately prepared. That is the building block of everything. You can't stand and then after that comes, you know, the, your passion for the game, which is part of your personality. And then that top tier is the, the poise, which is finding that mix between the you're fully prepared, you're in the moment and finding the mix between the excitement and then going over the cliff and, you know, lo- losing your mind as opposed to, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the combination of, boy, this sounds like something really exciting I'm listening to versus, wow, this guy just lost his mind uh, about about something you could find plenty of those calls too but that's the difference that's a 10 second version of a master's class on my view of play-by-play and that i don't do you have to have it sure you gotta have talent but man hard work makes up in any field hard work makes up for an awful lot including talent i think as well i mean in terms of your obviously you do most of the time you do it with a partner or do it with someone else you mean to have that chemistry with someone like you do with max you know it's I think that's, is that like a key thing that you would you know, suggest that when people start to get into it, to build those relationships and, you know, it, whenever we listen to, we used to listen to like, obviously Tommy, um, uh, you know, those two, like, you know, everyone's just bouncing off each other. Obviously Scal's come in now. Um, and it's, it's, it's just, people like to hear that chemistry and people bouncing off each other. So is that something else, which as well is uh, quite a key thing to kind of, you know, build those relationships with people. Well, of course it is. And it's also the art of creating on-air chemistry 
when off-air chemistry doesn't necessarily exist. It's one thing for Max and I to fit together the way we fit together and to make it its own show. You know, Mike, I'm not sure there's anybody else in the world. It could have been Tommy's partner, but Mike, like Tommy, what is this Hall of Fame flowing mighty river, right? You need a little stream. You need a quiet stream alongside that. They fit together perfectly. You know, Max and I have our thing. The question is, when you look at the partners, like the, the one of the nice compliments that I'm lucky enough to receive is that people say, boy, I really, you know, I, boy, I like Randy with X. I like him with Y. Well, he's, he's pretty good with Z. And then you realize after a while, yeah, that's not, that's not, a, uh, there's a reason you're saying that because you've got to be a point guard, particularly on television. So I remember reading a story about Jason Kidd 20 years ago, speaking of scout, who played with him back then, that, you know, Jason Kidd would figure out where his teammates, where do they want the ball? And where do they want it in their hands? Where do they want the pass to hit them? Where do they want it to hit them on the floor? Where is everybody comfortable? Because you have to, that's your job. If I'm doing the game with Max, I know where, listen, I, Max and I could do it blindfolded. And obviously I'll tell you something and people don't know. I'll break a little story here on the podcast for you. Some people, a few people know, a lot of people don't. So obviously this last couple of years have been largely a disaster doing remote broadcasts, doing, trying to figure out accommodation. Max and I are back on the road a little bit, but there was a trip that where Max didn't necessarily want to travel. It was Thanksgiving. It was a big holiday in the States. And I'm done with this not traveling business because like, I'm losing my mind trying to do these games. You know, it's one thing when we had to do it. It's another one. It's like, oh, we might just stay and do it remotely. It's a terrible broadcast. It's a bad idea. Hmm. Anyway, long story short, I said, why can't we, why don't we try doing some games where Max stays in the studio in Boston and I'll go and do the game in person and the Toronto San Antonio weekend over Thanksgiving, that's what we did. And nobody knew people who were working knew, but people who were listening couldn't really, couldn't really tell the difference because Max and I are just, you know, as we say, we can finish each other's sandwiches or whatever, you know, you get the point that it fits together, but can you, when you're working with somebody new, all right, I worked with a guy named Jimmy Smith doing MMA for two years. Then when I went back last year, there's a new guy, big John McCarthy, the legendary MMA referee. All right. Where does he want the ball? Now Josh Thompson is there. And where does he, so you get, eventually you figure out where everybody wants the ball and you, you know, you, you make it work. So yeah, the chemistry is important, but you got to work at that particularly on air. Like if I'm working with a new analyst, it's, I was going to say Doris, but I have Doris because I've been watching her for years and she's a dear friend of mine. But if somebody completely new, who I had never worked with before, let's say, all right, go to a game with Richard Jefferson. All right, let me watch some Richard Jefferson games. Let me see where he, what he's doing and where he wants the ball. What It's my job to make it easy for him. So chemistry is important, but it's also, you can't force it. So you got to make your own on-air chemistry. Same thing with players, by the way, fitting together. Some naturally do, some have to work at it. So, I mean, to be honest, we're getting, a, we're getting a lesson right here. I mean, we need to we need to write this down. We need to get a book. Like, so it sounds like you're primarily like uh, you often take the role of a facilitator, basically, in your role, and you're able to kind of ensure that you get people the right touches and let their personality shine through. Well, and yeah, for we have to do that. But where, which I'm not letting you do right now. But where are you? <laughs> what are you doing? Are you doing a hockey game on TV? Are you doing a basketball game on radio? Are you doing a baseball game on radio? Are you doing, they're all different as far as play-by-play analysts, where the analyst comes in and things like that. But TV is an analyst 
medium. And you are there to be the glue, caption the pictures and make sure the analyst is set up on replays and getting his points across a radio. There's not a radio in an action sport in basketball and in hockey analysts got to get in where they fit in, you know, particularly you can imagine this. If the basic rule of thumb in basketball radio play by play is you call a basket and then the analyst has a window until the ball basically comes across half court. Think about how the game has changed in the last 10, 15 years and how quickly with the pace, the ball comes back up, up the floor. So it's, it's hard. Yeah. So you have to, you gotta, you gotta find ways during free throws. You gotta find ways during, you know, it's, I was going to say, easy. I mean, it's sure, surely it surely is a lot harder doing it on radio because, you know, obviously you have to paint that picture to the listener constantly throughout the whole game where obviously if you're watching on TV, it's a little bit different because obviously you're watching the game as it goes on, but you're listening kind of subconsciously to the analysts, you know, which, you know, the analytics, which is going on in the background, but surely it, it must be a lot. It must be, a, it must be more satisfying knowing after you've come off the radio, you think that was, that was a great game. I, you know, we did that justice. Radio is, I'm a stage actor on radio and on TV, you're, you're a movie star. It's a completely different thing. Any actor will tell you that being a stage actor is the true art of it. It's the reward of it until the paycheck comes, right? So that's the, the great dilemma. You want to be great at everything, but that is the, of course, radio is. Of course, it is the hardest thing. You know, I got to do baseball about eight, nine years ago with the Red Sox. I did about 25 games over the summer filling in. And that was a dream come true because that was a sport that is built for radio i think football to some degree is too but baseball particularly because you've really got time to describe things whereas basketball you gotta basketball and hockey you gotta pick and choose what you're what you're gonna do there's too much going on you can't say everything you have to have an economy of words and you have to have a a lot of alliteration and be able to you know if you can't rap eminem it's hard to do elite level play-by-play because you have to be able to speak with elocution that quickly and you know, it's uh, that, that's a great vocal warm up, by the way, uh, for radio play by play. What's your song of choice? Oh my gosh, um, I would say there's one that he did with Dre. Um, uh, say what you say, and it it just has a lot of the alliteration that you want to. It just it was always a great. It was a vocal warm up I used to do back in my in my younger days. Now someone my age doing it's a little bit, you know. Shake. You're never aware of language until you have now my son just turned 10, right? He's just like, oh my gosh, look at all this fun adult language that they say at games and things like that. So now you have to be especially, you know, especially careful. You never really, you're never aware of it when you were, you're a 25 year old without kids. Like it, the language is crazy. Now it's like, oh, I, I can't. Oh, yeah. yeah. To, to uh, borrow your acting analogy, um, occasionally you do move from the stage to the Hollywood blockbuster. Um, and obviously, as international fans, we're not tuning into local radio with regularity because it's just you know, you know not feasible for us. But you have filled in on the TV broadcast in, in many times I've seen. Um, how would you describe um, your experience doing television? You know, it's a completely different animal, and I would not be too surprised if uh, you see this face a little bit when we get to the second half of the year, because our TV, Celtics TV, has not traveled at all uh, this year. Most of the teams are traveling, and I think in the second half of the year, you're going to see some more travel, so I wouldn't be surprised to see Scal and I uh, together in the second half of the year. But 
it's a, remember I did this is what I did in Minnesota 20 years ago. And it, I think it's the most freeing for a play-by-play announcer. I'll give you an example, hockey on TV. You, you still have to do, you don't have to do, you don't have to identify right and left and things like that. People can see, but hockey still requires player identification. Basketball on TV requires the least um, detailed play-by-play. So you're, you're free. Um, it, it is a completely different, uh, I'm trying to think of a good analogy from like running on a treadmill versus like walking. <laughs> uh, it's just a different, you know, animal. You got to lay out. You don't want to be, I think I'm always too, I'm so aware of switching and not trying to talk too much that maybe I don't do enough. You're always walking that line. It's hard to do something a couple of times a year uh, and get any kind of rhythm in doing it. But again, to me, if I go over and fill in, if I'm filling in, it's somebody else's show. It's their show. You're not really taking ownership of it. So you're, you're coming there, you're trying to not drag your dirty feet all over the rug and the coffee table and just, you know, read the, read the commercials the way they want them read and set up scout and try to tell the story of the game. You know, the more, if I end up doing it a lot more and a lot more frequently, I think you'll probably see more personality stuff, you know, with Scal and I and kind of, you know, put a mark on it, but it, I would say of just about any sport I can think of, it is the biggest difference between TV and radio as far as your ability to pull back and tell more stories. Okay. Well, to be honest, I mean, obviously we, we know, we know you obviously is the, is the voice of the Celtics, but the one question I have, one question I do have is now I'm sure you know this, how many games, you know, off the top of your head, how many games you've done over your course of your Celtics uh, tenure and to one better that, do you know how many minutes of basketball you've covered? I certainly have no idea how many minutes. The reason I know the games is because it's come up recently. I know somebody was keeping track of it at one point because I had done like a thousand games. Marv, Ian Eagle, and I were the only ones to do a thousand games before we turned 40. That's so, correct. because of that, people, I know the only reason I'm, I'm mentioning that is because somebody knew that. So, once you have that count, it came up and I know I did, I did my 2000th. It was a bubble game in the playoffs was 2000. But the reason it's funny you'd ask is because somebody, Chris Forsberg, I know you guys follow everybody who does the, you know, covers the team. And we were talking about this. It recently came up. Max and I together, we think it's very hard to gauge the number of games that Mike and Tommy did because Tommy missed so many games over the last few years. But we think there is growing sentiment that Max and I are about to pass Mike and Tommy for most games together doing Celtics. Cause I know that Max, somebody brought this up next season at some point next season, Max and I will have done our 2000th together. And the feeling is, and that started this whole weird email that I was reading late at night that I got from somebody that Tommy, Mike and Tommy didn't get to 2000. So therefore, and I kind of lost, but that's the only reason I know that is because I knew that 1001 because that people made a thing of that. And then the 2001 and then the 2000 with Max. So, cause I know he did about 200 in Minnesota, but uh, that's probably a, feels like it was about 2000 games worth of stuff trying to figure that out in my head. But yeah, it was, uh, that's where I think the number is. And I know why it came up recently because at one point when I got past 2000, I thought Chick Hearn had always had this sort of the NBA unofficial record. 
And I know he had done about 36, 3,700 games. And in my mind, I had done about 2,000 games and I'm like four in my late 40s. And I'm like, huh. And then you realize Al McCoy in Phoenix is still going and he has long since blown past check. Like he's got, I don't think he's at 5,000, but he's got to be past 4,000. And I'm like, dude, good luck. You can have that one. I'm not, <laughs> not, not a record I'm, I'm going to chase. That's what I mean. But the thing about like all of those games, you think about like, that is that is a lot of Celtics history. Yeah, it is. And I mean, that leads me in to my next question, which is, you know, what have been your top three favorite moments that you can think of from broadcasting the Celtics? You know, there are, you always want to stray from the obvious answer, but I've always, you know, for many, many years, I've really felt because it was it was a great game in NBA history and a memorable game that they'll replay over and over. But also for me, it was a evolution. Like I remember leaving game seven against the Cavs, the LeBron Paul Pierce game. Like, you know, it's, it's sort of where you are in your life. And I didn't have my son yet. I wasn't, I wasn't married anymore. And like that team, it was like the only thing going on in your life that you was that team for me. And I was just so locked into work. And I remember that was like the best work I had done in my life leading up to that. And then that game was just, you know, you just see everything so clearly. It's funny when you watch it back and we were courtside back then. So that changed everything too. When we're no longer courtside or don't have a great view of the game. You have different memories of it and your ability to call it right. Um, but I always, that's usually the first one I mention. I mention I talk about game seven in 2010. I never thought the 2010 finals were, were great, but I do remember thinking before it started that it was going to go seven to where when Mike Breen walked over to me before game one and said, what do you think? And I said, I think this is the one they're going to remember you for. Cause I knew there, there, I just felt like there'd be a seventh game and my memory of it. And not so much that the game was great, but Doris. So I mentioned earlier, Doris Burke, who's going to be doing the game. Uh, she's coming tomorrow night to the golden state game. She was sitting next to me in the games in LA. Her seat was right next to mine. And at one point we were sort of kicking each other under the table. Like, do you believe where we are like the whole world is watching this and we are in the middle of it. And the most famous celebrities that you can think of are behind us. Like what, you know, and sitting watching the game and like the Eddie Murphy sitting with Sylvester Stallone and Steven Spielberg, like two rows behind where I am. And there's, you know, like all the, and you're not really affected by famous people, particularly in LA, but in the finals, it was a different animal. As you can imagine, it was just everybody and you being in the center of it. And at the end of every timeout, when you're broadcasting NBA games, they hand you a statue. They come by and they hand out, here's the latest box score. You know, they, I, I had one near me, I'd grab it. Uh, and they, you know, you just, it's just a random thing they do. Doris had gotten up at the end of the first quarter to do the interview with Doc. She was doing sidelines. So she goes, she gets up, they put her statue down and mine. And I flipped mine over and I drew two circles on it, a big circle and a little tiny circle. And I put it in front of her and the big circle said world. And the little tiny circle said us because it just, it felt like, you know, when she sat back down, it just felt like, you know, look, look, look where you are. I remember that day. I remember getting on the bus, just thinking you're going to be on a podcast 15 years from now. And someone's going to ask you about calling game seven of the finals. And just like, try to remember that day. Um, you were at the epicenter. Right. Yeah, there's no question. And I, it's funny, I talk about 2002 now a lot more, my first year with the Celtics, only because of what's happened in Boston 
over the last 20 years. And that the difference when I first came back from Minnesota, that first year was the year the Celtics ended the playoff drought. I went all the way to game six of the conference finals. And this town wanted to have a parade for that team. The excitement was just, it was insane because it had been so long since they had any taste of it. And here they are with the two, one lead and the conference finals, a chance to go to the final flash forward, uh, or 20 flash forward to 18 years, 2020 Celtics go to game six of the conference finals and lose. And people here were spitting on it and conference finals. They didn't even get to the finals. What? And that's what happens. This is why people in the States hate Boston right now, because you've had 20 years, six Super Bowls, title town. series, NBA title, Stanley Cup, and the standards have changed. And it's really that the evolution of these moments, which you try to appreciate, which you're asking about, you know, granted, Brad Stevens, it's his own fault because that team sort of exceeded expectations every year, 15, 16, 17, and it built it up to where people just assumed with all the other teams winning championships that the Celtics would too. And so you say a, a, a stat like this in the last 15 years, this is 15 years now in the NBA, nobody has played more playoff games or won more playoff games than the Celtics. Now, if I had told you in 2007 that 15 years from now, I'd be saying that. It was inconceivable, yet here it is. And if you ever, if you tweet that number, I guarantee you, do this as an experiment. Tweet that statement tonight, and I guarantee you, what, what are the replies going to be? Well, they only won one championship, though. Right. So they plummet from first in playoff wins to tied for fourth or fifth in championships if, if you do it that way. But it's a matter of what success is. And, you know, that uh, it was a, obviously the question was about memories, but it's different now, the, the perspective of it. Um, as we're talking, last night, Isaiah Thomas made his debut in the G League. And had a you know crazy game where he scored 42 points and eight assists without a turnover. I think as a body of work, that 16-17 Isaiah Thomas season was full of so many memorable moments mm. that uh, that was a pretty cool thing to be able to document also. I uh, I was there for the uh, for probably the peak week of the IT run. So I think he had the Raptors, Pistons, uh, and Lakers, and he went kind of 47 42 and 38 in in a row and then we had the thanksgiving uh sorry not thanksgiving the um super bowl sunday yep. clippers game with paul pierce's return and that was just an unbelievable time to be at isaiah thomas fan yeah isaiah had the great game paul paul came in hit the shot at the end of the game it was like sort of magic at the end of the all-star game we're calling it in real time and it was like magic in 92 hitting that shot at the end yeah it really i mean those were it was kind of a magical time, and it was the, the, the loss of innocence, right, with Kyrie. And then after the Gordon Hayward injury, you still had this amazing year in 2018, and that was, like, such a bummer to lose that game seven because you had no right to be there in the first place, and yet you got your hopes up. And then you get to 18-19, and the excitement was – I mean, no, this town was ready to go berserk for the 18-19 Celtics, and you know, we know how that, that all turned out. And uh, it's been – Tough sense, I think, for people to realize, to accept the reality of what the Celtics are, which is a team in the middle of the pack with two very good young players, one of whom has missed half the games, and accepting that you've had Kyrie Irving, Al Horford, who's back, obviously, you know, all this extraordinary Marcus Morris, Terry Rozier, everybody, all these people have left. Gordon Hayward, that was the biggest one. Was the I mean, history, Celtics history changed when Gordon Hayward 
five minutes into Gordon Hayward. So that was the entire trajectory of where the Celtics, the direction, and even to this day, everything changed that night. But so you have bad luck and you've had a ton of departures and you're trying to build the talent back up. And yet expectations stay here, even when reality is here. In, in, in some ways, in terms of a kind of half glass full approach, it is a great problem to have where people seem to be incredibly irritated that when, you know, they're not in a situation to compete at the moment, uh, but they do have a 23-year-old putting up kind of 40 burgers on a regular basis. So there's some perspective to be had on Celtics Twitter, I believe. Yeah, well, perspective and Twitter don't really mix too well, but yeah, it's... Uh... It is. And listen, that's that's the vocal minority, too. You know, you're always going to find people to complain no matter what. And social media is its own thing. You have to learn how to navigate and learn to discard and learn that the mute button is a beautiful thing that you just can't engage in everybody who wants to be loud and angry and that fans are still fans and you still want to serve everybody and uh, try to enjoy the fact that you had a five or six year run as a top five team in the NBA. And right now you're not for the last year and a half. And is there a bridge? Is there a pathway to get back there? There is, Um, but it's hard. Nobody wants to hear about Sacramento or Minnesota here that they would kill, you know, they give, they cut fingers off to have playoff games there, but Mm -hmm. okay. Like that's, this is the way you want it. And it's funny, all the Boston teams during the pandemic, all had the Patriots of the bad year and the Red Sox had the bad year and the Celtics kind of dropped off. So um, you know, it's just you're unbelievably spoiled. It is a good problem to have. But again, if you're under 30, 35, 33, early 30, early mid 30s from Boston, you have no idea. You don't know what it was like. You have no perspective on that at all. So I get it. But I get people that are mad when the Celtics don't win the championship. But are what are you doing to your kids when they come home with B pluses? Like, is that, are you sending them to the room without dinner? Cause that's a, that's an embarrassment to the family. We're like, okay, let's, let's try to enjoy some of the journey. And we just mentioned about Isaiah Thomas's um, unbelievable run and shared some memories on it. I just want us to kind of have a kind agreement to ignore the recent news that came out about an hour before this recording. We, 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 you know, it's good to have him back in the league, but. Maybe not in those colours, right, guys? <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. But anyway, to be honest, I'm, I'm actually, I'm just really surprised that he's been out of the league like he has been. I mean, it's, it's you've got players, uh, and Boogie's still around. I mean, it's just like, you've, you've got players yeah, like yeah. that who are still in the league where you've sure. got Isaiah who can come in, he can be a, he could be an impact off the bench, he can give you scoring. Uh, you know, teams like Sacramento, teams like, I don't know, you know, those types of lower caliber teams at the moment could use that. It's really interesting. I think when one of the great things that Brad Stevens did that doesn't really get a lot of credit is because we romanticize about that 16, 17 season for Isaiah. We can rattle him off. Oh, yeah, 47, 38. How many was he giving up? You know, that's what we don't. And here's the, what people, the dirty little secret. I loved every second of that. And he was, he did, he was fifth in the MVP voting, fifth. So it was an amazing accomplishment. He's an amazing player, you know, obviously before he got hurt and even now still with the skill set. But remember this, the Celtics in 2017 were the 10th best defensive team in the league. 
after Isaiah left. And Kyrie is no listen. Kyrie's never won defensive player of the year. But you make that change, and the Celtics the next year were the best defensive team in the league in 2018. So it was really hard. And by the way, look at the best Isaiah Thomas thing I can mention now is look at Kemba. Because Kemba's now what Isaiah was four or five years ago. And here's the problem with the league. You can't hide people anymore defensively because while the Celtics have two of the best in Jalen and Jason, that's the whole league right now. The whole league is six, seven. So it's real. This is why Kemba's not playing right now because it's hard to be a five eleven player because they're going to find you defensively. So like Kemba is sort of the new it and that you can be a, a microwave guy, come off the bench, be a scorer in that six man role, but it's hard defensively in a league in which every player is like Shea Gilders Alexander. It's all six, seven guys running around. It's hard to find your place defensively. It was a, it was a real lightning in the bottle moment where yeah. the scheme was able to be built around that yeah. specific player and a situation he probably hasn't been able to find himself in again. But there is an element of health, of course, that has affected it. But when he was in Cleveland, unfortunately, I wanted to turn a blind eye to it. But unfortunately, today I saw a StatMuse tweet that was from his time in Cleveland that basically had him as um, the worst, some of the worst defensive numbers in 25 years. That team was really bad defensively. I was like, because LeBron was like, I'm not going to play defense until March at that point. And so you guys are on your own and we're going to do what we can do to, to get by and then win in the playoffs, which they did. But that was a situation where the system was not going to be built around him because it wasn't his team. I remember Isaiah, Isaiah always talks about, what he did for the Celtics. And it's all true, but that was the very definition of a symbiotic relationship. The Celtics and Isaiah, I got, it hadn't worked for Isaiah anywhere else. He mm-hmm. needed a Brad Stevens and a team to be built around him. And the Celtics needed that offensive guy. The Celtics were doing a lot of good things at that point, but they just didn't have offensively. They couldn't compete. And it was the perfect marriage and they revitalized each other. And it was a dream come true, but Isaiah, after the injury, Isaiah went, you can make the case. He went from a top five player one year to a bottom five player the previous year, which is by for anyone that thinks that Danny Ainge shouldn't have made that trade. Everybody in the world would have made that trade. Everybody would have done that Faustian bargain and taken the chance on Kyrie as much as people convinced themselves and talked themselves into, you know, all the Kyrie stuff that had happened before and has happened since. Whenever you get Kyrie on your team, what do you say? Well, that won't happen with us. That won't happen to me. When you're dating the runway model, okay, and you've read about all the crazy stuff that she had done before, what do you say? Well, that's not going to happen with me. That was just with all the other guys. With me, it's going to be perfect. And Kyrie is the same dude he was in Cleveland, that he was here, that he is in Brooklyn. And for better, and you have to know that. That's not... That's neither a knock or a praise of Kyrie. It's none of the above. The Kyrie conversation is its own separate podcast and the complexities therein. But don't convince yourself that he it's going to be different with you because it wasn't here and it hasn't been anywhere. Fool's gold. But we knew that we knew the uh, we knew the ups and downs and the potential for it to go wrong. But as you said, everybody takes that trade. Yeah. Nine times out of ten. It, there's no nine out of ten. There's no tenth time. You have, you, you have to do that. Mm-hmm. My son, I like to tell this story. My son was trying to do the math. He was six, not quite six. And he loved Isaiah Thomas, loved him. 
And I would show him the box. He'd wake up in the morning and I'd show him these box scores you're talking about. And the first thing he'd do with his little eyes is he'd go down to the thing and he'd go across and then he'd see the number. And his eye, I have videos of his eyes like popping at these big giant, now 44, 53, whatever. And his eyes would go, he'd go 53 points, whatever. So he loved Isaiah Thomas. And he was with his mother the day of the trade, which I had a hunch something was going to happen. And I talking to him on FaceTime, I said, so buddy, we got to talk. Um, you remember that thing I told you about that might happen, right? With Isaiah Thomas getting traded. Cause I remember my favorite player when I was a kid getting traded and it's a very traumatic, horrible thing. So, and here's my son, he's almost six. So he's going to sound to be a man. This is the first time it's going to happen. So we talked about with Isaiah, he goes, yeah, he goes, did he get traded? I said, yeah, he did. Where? And I said, well, he got traded to Cleveland and he goes, did we get that guy back? Who's really good. And I said, you mean Kyrie Irving? And he goes, yeah. I said, yeah, we did. He goes, Okay. Oh, that's cold, man. That's cold. Six years old and you're already just, you know, so you can't blame Danny for doing it. If Future GM. So yeah, exactly right. Like I, that was, man, it's that's, a, that still brings me chills. Like, whew, that's cold. Kids are cold anyway. Kids are cold. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, I mean, mean yeah. yeah. I mean, we're talking about, you know, obviously changes over the NBA, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, going back to your commentating, you know, play by play analysis, um, you know, throughout the years, for you, what has it been like, you know, having to adapt to the change in the game? So from like the 90s to the early 2000s to what it is now with the three balls so dominant and the speed and the tempo is a lot higher now. I mean, what has it been like being able to adapt your, basically adapt your game to suit what's going on um, in terms of the expansion and the uh, development of the NBA? Well, I think it's important in whatever you do to not be rigid about what was. You can be romantic about what was, but understand that everything is always changing. Um, the games always do. The NFL, you know, every sport changes. Baseball has changed dramatically. The, you know, like starting a pitcher comes in and just pitches the first inning. You have an opener now to start a game. And that just, you know, like rubs you the wrong way. If you're going to be so attached to the way it was and you just have to have a different attitude. I know people don't, you see it once in a while on social media. I don't like watching the game now. It's just guys checking up threes. Well, that's the game now. And ask the Utah Jazz. They're the number one. It's a very bizarre time in the league in which Steph Curry is on the best defensive team in the league. And Rudy Gobert is on the best offensive team in the league. So I can't, you know, there's, there's always moments like that. You have to say, okay, well, wait a minute. The game certainly has changed if you're saying that. Mm-hmm. And I think Max has more of a problem with it sometimes too. Like he can't, you know, he's, he always hated the threes. I mean, a guy like Rafe LaFrance was way ahead of his time. So Rafe LaFrance comes here and he was shooting threes and not getting to the free throw line. And Max would like, you know, Max wanted, he was like throwing up in his mouth when I would say these numbers, like Rafe's attempted four threes for every free throw he's attempted. But the game has changed and you have to, you know, it's funny. I asked Brad Stevens once, this is five, six years. This isn't like in the last couple of years. We're talking 2014, 2015, when the three started to go up. And I said, is this going to be, one of these, every, the game always changes. The NFL is a three, four front, then it's a zone blitz. And it's, everything goes in cycles. Is this going to be a, a cycle where we're now everything's three point shooting, but eventually it's going to go back into the post or whatever. And he said, no, what's going to happen is the three point, like the, the shots are going to become longer. Things are going to be go farther back. And he was exactly right. And now the three point line is just a suggestion. Now you got guys coming into the league that aren't necessarily all-star players, Peyton Pritchard, for example, that, the three-point line is not – you're not trying to get to the three-point line. You're just trying to get wherever you can get a shot off. And in the Trey Young, Steph Curry, Damian Lillard world, 
in which we live. That's the new game that you have to defend, you know, from, from anywhere. And so uh, you is calling the game. Yeah. You have to be, there's a dynamic, particularly on radio that we were talking about earlier. Take what I was saying before about the pattern and the back and forth and where the analyst has the spot. Well, 20 years ago, when a team is dribbling up across half court, there's no, there's no danger that anything's about to happen. A scoring play can't happen in the next couple of seconds. It can now. Mm-hmm. So you just, you watch the game, you watch the game differently. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. And I mean, obviously we got to congratulate Steph was he overtook Ray um, the other night. And the fact that the fact he's done that and the fact he's, he can probably add another, you know, a thousand or so within his career on top of that as well. I mean, the guy's, the guy's ice cold in me. He's, he's unbelievable from the, from the three. And some of the shots he does take as well, you think, how, how has that gone in? How have, how have you, how have you manufactured that to go in? But it, it just looks effortless and it just looks so clean as well. So yeah, big congrats to him. Everything in life, everything in life that looks effortless took an extraordinary amount of effort. Mm-hmm. to perfect i think that's a that's a good life lesson when it comes to steph curry or anything you see the, the, the hours of work that you don't see that went into it and i love steph i wish he could have waited one more game um selfishly it's so funny i was tracking that from the start of the year on social <laughs> media with the idea that you know what even the opening night i tweeted something you can find it where i said you know what there's 20 something games till they get to boston he'd have to go crazy but it's not out of the realm of possibility and i was thinking there's a 10 or 15% chance it could happen but there's no way he's going to break it by then like it would have been late and then like the idea that it was going to happen before he got here mm. was impossible and then even in the last couple of weeks i was like i knew he needed to sit out one for it to happen but i it was it was pretty apparent i think i said even on the air like 2 weeks ago it was obvious everything was headed for New York because Reggie was going to be there. It would have been, I mean, Boston would have been poetic too because Ray had done it on that floor with Reggie there mm-hmm. 10 years earlier, but it, it happened the way it was supposed to. Yeah, that's that's the uh, the Celtic slant on it is obviously Ray's involvement in it. And I was thinking about it the other day and it's actually impressive that Ray's reign lasted around a decade because Considering the change in era that Nathan mentioned yeah. and, also, and also the uplift in freeze attempted that you mentioned, Sean, respect to uh, Ray Allen for that lasting so long. It was just a, a testament to how impressive his shooting has been. There was one other element to it, which is that how cool would it have been? Remember, if this goes another game, Ray would have been here. And maybe that would have been the thing that started to, you know, melt some more of the ice. Now it was a secondary element that we were mm-hmm. thinking about that it would have, what a cool thing to have Ray here for that, which maybe would lead to the inevitable, you know, reunion, which we haven't even been able to have because mm-hmm. you, you can't do it till that Ray thing is fixed. Well, I think eventually he'll, uh, well, obviously we've got KG's jersey retirement um, in March, I believe, isn't it? So, yep. Um, I see they have made up uh, on yeah. socials, so I think hopefully, hopefully it'll be there as well. I know I'm going to be there anyway, but um, hopefully, yeah, hopefully he's there as well. It'd be nice to see. It'd be nice to see. So, should we talk about the Celtics this season a little bit? Now, obviously, this, the start of the start of the season saw a hell of a lot of change with Brad moving up, um, and then Immy coming in, and loads of people out the door, loads of people in the door. I mean, just as a whole. What, what what did you make of it when it happened? I was 
not in the least bit surprised that Danny stepped down. I was, and I, you know, consider myself fairly close to the guy. Um, I'll tell you what my text to Brad was when I found out that morning. I said, listen, if you wanted to get out of the pregame interview, there were more, there were other ways to do it without (laughs) having to do something this dramatic. Um, It was, that was stunning even to me as close as, I mean, those of us that are closest to it were still like, whoa, okay, that happened. Um, I think when history is written, the bubble experience and the season before I'd taken some toll on Brad. And as I've said already, so I said five times already, my son is 10. You're keenly aware that there's a small window where you are still cool versus uh, dad, just give me the car keys. I don't want, I want to go out with my friends or whatever. There's a very small window and you better you be at every moment. One of these, this thing about, listen, my life is about travel. I live on airplanes. That's what I do. This last year and a half, you're never going to hear me complain. I got a year and a half with my son. I went to, I got to go to every hockey game. You know, I still coach his baseball team. It was, everything was tremendous that way. So I was keenly aware of all these moments when they happen. Brad has two teenagers, right? Um, it was, that part made sense. Um, I love the, you know, the email hire I thought was, it was such a sea change year, right? For coaching and leadership in the NBA. And there were so many, it led to a glut of really interesting candidates, you know, Chauncey and Jamal Mosley and, you know, Becky and even talking about Carol Lawson. It was a fascinating time. So um, I think the change is exciting. And I think, again, tempering the expectations that people might have, uh, it was, this is a really important year for the Celtics. This is the year where you have to decide about Jason and Jalen. We know what they are as players. They're elite NBA players, not even in their prime yet. Pro, you know, a couple of years from really getting deep into their prime. And they, and they like each other. They get along. All that's good. But the question that has to be answered this year, and it's hard when one of them has missed half the games. The question you have to answer now is, do they fit together? And once you decide one way or the other, and I don't know what the answer to that question is. I know some people have drawn a conclusion. I'm not sure I'm there yet. Uh, I don't think it's that easy an answer. But once you decide, then you got to go and, you know, build around them and and add guys. You've added some veterans here and it's, you know, fine. But obviously this is not a championship team as constructed. It's hard to do that on the fly. And by the way, where would the Celtics, for everything the Nets are doing, oh, the Nets are an elite team. Where would the Celtics be without that trade? You have to be able to get – you have to pick high in the draft. Mm. How do you get elite talent if you're not picking high in the draft? And the Celtics have been too good for too long. And, the, you know, to have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown because of that Nets trade is this unbelievable gift that gives the Celtics a chance or a pathway, you know, to get back. And that's the thing as well. I mean, how would you – what would you add? If, I mean, if you were if you were Emmy, if you were Brad, obviously Jalen, Jason, they're staying at the Celtics. Who would you, you know, want to piece together? Who would you bring in? If you could think of a player off the top of your head that you think would complement both of them, who would you pick? Well, the problem is getting one, getting that player without yeah. giving up one of those two, which almost seems impossible. And that's going to lead to the obvious question, which is, like, to me, it's becoming increasingly obvious to me that Carl Anthony Towns is that that's the, that's the perfect target because he complements whatever. And that – as much as the, for all the Bradley Beal conversations, there was no knock on Bradley Beal, but that's not to me, to me, Beal, Tatum and Brown is not the same as, ta- it, if you have to move one of them for Carl Anthony Towns, 
and then you go and bring Bradley Beal in, or then you add an elite guard as a free agent, and you have Tatum, Beal, and Towns, Jalen Brown's at you, whatever. I mean, it doesn't everybody's got an idea of how how you go? But this is the I think the decision that has to be made, and it's not necessarily say so you know what you can build around Jalen and Jason, and we can do it. We can add a third. We can try to add a third piece around them and win. Great if that's the decision, but this is the year you need the body of work for Ime to get a get a hold of himself as an NBA head coach, and I've been nothing but impressed so mm-hmm. far. Um, to and the, the the way the players respond to him too. That's what you you know the players say. Hey, you want a coach that's going to call you out? Well, you got it. You got a coach that's going to call you out. But that's to me what this year is about. And the East is it's fascinating because the Celtics could end up as the tenth best team in the East. They could end up as the third or fourth best team in the East. There's no you know it's it's a wild. That's the other thing you're trying to do this while you've had the deepest and toughest Eastern Conference in a quarter century is interesting too. Is we're talking. Only five of the 15 teams in the West have a positive scoring differential, which to me is the real C level of 500. Is like, are you scoring more points, more points than the opponents? And only five out of 15. It's crazy. Phenomenal. I didn't know that. I think you may have. The fans want to fall. The fans want to fall in love with them. You can you can feel it, but the fans are smart enough to know. Well, I don't want to you know get my heart broken here. Mm. I mean, to be honest, well, Danny's gone to obviously Danny's now being appointed. Yeah, and all, all the whole of Celtics Twitter is going into meltdown because everyone seems to think we're going to get Donovan Mitchell. Uh, <laughs> no way so, gonna- so it sounds as though it's the kind of um, unicorn, versatile big that you think is the kind of uh, the the real aim for. Well, I think that that, that compliments. What don't you have? Mm-hmm. You know, look at Gordon. I mean, you had with Gordon Hayward here, and we're coming off a night where Gordon Hayward had like 42 points on 19 shots or whatever last night. You know, Gordon Hayward here was the third guy playing that spot. Like you're, you had your three best players with Kemba all playing the same position. So you got to figure out a way to have a group that that fits together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could argue like Steph and Clay, are they the same? They're not the same player. You know, Steph is more, they're not the same player. Jalen and Jason, by the way, here's a, a number stat. You can make stats do whatever you want them to do. But this is a trend that I think is interesting under the umbrella of this discussion. We have 28 games or whatever the Celtics have played the uh, body of work. And we have enough, half of them with Jalen, half of them without. So what's the difference? What, what do the Celtics look like this year so far? It's not a huge sample, but it's enough to draw an interesting, to discuss this. Offensively, without Jalen, the Celtics actually have been a little bit better, a little bit more efficient. Credit a lot of that to Schroeder having big games when Jalen's been out, but the offense hasn't been affected. In fact, it's been a little bit better. The defense without Jalen craters. It completely falls apart. The Celtics are the best defensive team in the league with Jalen Brown. They're one of the worst without him. So think about that in the context of what we're talking about. That defensively, do they fit together? I mean, you can't have enough guys like that. If you had five guys like that, It'd be really hard to score, right? Mm-hmm. You know, with Marcus Smart out there and Jalen, really difficult to score. But offensively, do they fit together? Mm-hmm. How much better can they fit together? And I'm not, I don't think that book is closed. I'm just saying that's the question that yeah. hangs over this season to me. 
And there's so much nuance to that as well. You know, people can show as many compilations of them passing the ball well to each yeah. other, you know, to the weak side. But the, the yeah. issue is what you're saying isn't they can't fit together on the basketball court. You're, say, you're saying what is the ceiling of the fit? Does it get to that kind of desired championship level that uh, Boston fans, as you mentioned, have become so accustomed to? That's the next level, right? You can say whatever you want with math, but you can do whatever you want on YouTube, right? Yeah. I can put together a YouTube clip. Look, here's Jalen passing to Jason. Jason passing to Jalen. Like, okay. It's eventually you have enough evidence and body of work to say people, other teams will look and say, well, it becomes like your turn, your turn, my turn. Sometimes that's been the best offense for the Celtics. Mm-hmm. Jalen gets hot. Jason gets hot. Great. But it's not either one of their, you don't have to have an issue between players for them not necessarily to, to fit together. It's just, do they fit together? Can they? And I don't think the answer is no to that yet. But mm-hmm. it is the question this year will has to decide. Blogs need to be written, Sean. Uh, every, my, one of my favorite jokes of all time is the old Jerry Seinfeld joke, back when there were newspapers, kid, kids, uh, that two guys walk out of the newspaper at the end of the day, and one guy turns to the other one and says, we ju- everything fit. We just made it. You know, like one more thing happens today and we're screwed. And that is a brilliant joke because the obviously the, the point being the underlying message is column inches have to be filmed, blogs have to be written. And again, I think if we had more of a sense of humor about it, like trade rumors and all this other stuff and took it more with a grain of salt as opposed to, but everyone just wants all the stuff to be true. So then it takes on a life of its own and you're forced to answer jason tatum doesn't want to win says an anonymous per- really really okay you know at what point do you not even acknowledge the nonsense and all that i always thought i was told Danny this i thought it's easier to be a gm in the time of crazy rumors every day because just the more nonsense for you to wade to to wade through it's more distraction it's more you know misdirection yeah absolutely i mean we're almost, we're almost coming to the end of the podcast. Obviously, I've got one more question for you before we get you to do your best British accent. So um, basically what, what that is, is that what do you see in the next five years for the Celtics? How do you see the next five years playing out? Like if, if you could stab a guess at it, you know, do you see a championship? Do you see more progression? Do you see a dip? Like what, what in, you know, from, from your professional point of view, how would you you know go for the next five years i think that uh, i guess uh, from prediction standpoint i think brad is going to be active i think i I don't i don't think he's going to be overly patient uh in this role i think he was waiting for december 15th to get here you know to really start the the juices flowing Mm -hmm. i think changes are going to come if you're asking me if the question on the floor is is this a Jalen Jason team for the next five years or does one of them get moved? I feel like I almost have to say gun to my head. I don't want to see it happen, but my feeling is that one of them does. I don't know why I think that I just think it Um, in order to make the, you know, that, that, that opening break, right. When you're playing pool, like to, to break up the log jam to start it over again, because as we said in the beginning, the tolerance in Boston for, to be a 47 win 10th best team in the NBA, eighth best team in the NBA, 
most places is good enough and here it's not. So there's almost more pressure to go for broke here and to, it's better to take a shot, you know, and roll the dice on, you know, make the Kyrie Irving trade. You got to go for the whole thing here. And so because of that, I do think changes will probably come. I think that this year's team can play their way out of that. You know, if they overachieve and we get, if the answer to the question we were asking earlier is yes, then maybe there won't be major changes, but as much as we love, listen, I don't think there's anyone that loves Al Horford more than I do or his sister, but Al was brought here to be a contract. So he's helped the team. Schroeder was here brought here to help the team, but the, the reality of the, salary cap age and how you have to build a team is that those are pieces now to, uh, to make your team better for, you know, again, five years from now is Al Horford still going to be on this team in five years. And we know the answer to that is no. So you have to, you know, look at things as, as looking at more that the pieces are in place to, to make more significant moves. And you spoke about knowing both of them fairly well. And you have said that kind of Brad, you suspect will be, active as a GM and ready for these moves and always looking for the move. And we know that Ainge did pull off some of the most incredible trades that you could ever imagine. Um, But he did gain a reputation as someone who was a nearly man and had his fingers in the pies, but didn't quite go for broke in the end. Do you feel as though that will be a dramatic change in culture? I think that when it comes to a lot of that stuff with Danny was, Again, we read rumor, 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 rumor. It takes two people. You got to get the guy on the other end of the phone to do it. And this is the problem. Danny doesn't control time and space. If he wanted to stockpile all those draft picks and make a move, you got to get the guy on the other end of the phone to say yes. And the sell, by the way, one of the moves that Danny did not make that would not have worked out well, he tried a perfect example as draft night in 2015, Terry Rozier draft. Danny tried like heck to move all of these pieces and all the stuff he to make this big move to move because he wanted Justice Winslow. Justice Winslow, yeah. As, I mean, who knew, right? Like it turns out that was the whole that you ended up with Terry Rozier instead. And you try, but Michael Jordan for some reason said no because he wanted Frank Kaminsky. So this entire draft, the entire Celtics trajectory could have been changed over two guys here, Justice Winslow and Frank Kaminsky, who you know, Danny wanted Justice Winslow and Michael Jordan wanted Frank Kaminsky, and that's you become fixated on players. And you know, don't get me started on the whole Robert Swift, Al Jefferson thing, which I always use that as the example of you get fixated on a player, one thing bounces a different way. Celtics take Robert Swift instead of Al Jefferson. I mean, again, I won't go down that path of the, what could have happened, but there's no banner, there's no banner 17 if you know you have Al Swift and not Robert Swift and not Al Jefferson. That's just the way it goes. So everything is very fragile. And so well, Danny didn't he didn't trade those. He tried, but takes two. And he, he picked that up that rotation largely from not making trades that if they did happen retrospectively, they look bad. You know, for, so like yeah, nobody um, says nobody ever says that. Nobody ever talks about that. Exactly. But bargaining all the chips on the table yeah. that, that ended up being Jalen and Jason for the likes of Demarcus Cousins and right. Paul George and yep. You have to have you can do it if you want with the Kyrie thing. Oh, he doesn't make the Kyrie trade, and you keep that pick, and you get, you know, you could have drafted Shea Gilgis Alexander. Well, you you know what? I mean, you could do that with everybody. Listen, how many GMs right now this week are getting phone calls from people from ten years ago about stuff? Mm-hmm. 
uh, passing up on you know, Minnesota and New York and all these teams that passed up on stuff. All right. Nobody saw it. He was a little, he was a 160 pound kid from Davidson. You know, it's amazing. He went as high as he did. People say the same stuff about Yanis, Giannis. You know, passing on Yanis because he played yeah. in Greek gyms. No one forecasted that he would become this behemoth. That Very we see did. Uh, the Celtics passed. Danny passed on Yanis. He did. 13 people passed on Yanis. Mm-hmm. All right. I did. I did appreciate the uh, David Kahn response, though. Did you see? Yeah, that? I said that came across my radar. Yeah. yeah, that was incredible. Yeah. Okay. Well, Sean, that has pretty much come to the end of the podcast episode. But before we, before, obviously, before you go, me and Josh like to uh, try and get our guests to do their so, best British. What, tell me, tell me this. Why? Why? What? what what's the? What, what's the point? Like, why? What, why are we doing this? <laughs> I mean, it's not. It's not too bad. It's not too it's, bad. To make us look foolish. <laughs> I've heard worse yeah, yeah. on professional dramas, Sean. Yeah. When, when, when you get, when you usually have an American yeah. try and play a British person, it's, it's, you've done a lot better than what they do. So I, 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 I can't imagine anyone not being a, like, that just must sound terrible when somebody tries to, like, uh, why would you even try? I always love inflections in, the, you know, because in the States we have, you know, Boston has its own, obviously has its own accent. The Phil- Philadelphia has its, a very unique accent um, like the, uh, that people do. Like when Brett Brown was coaching the Sixers, he was a Boston guy in Philadelphia. So if you're me, you love hearing voices and accents and all these different things. But it always, yeah, it sounds terrible. Like, why would you even? I mean, to be fair, we've got so many accents here in the UK. I mean, as soon as you go up north, yeah. it starts to get less and less. Uh, you know, you can't really understand what they're saying the further you get yeah. up but it's uh yeah it's always fun but anyway sean honestly really really appreciate your time thank you for coming on obviously you've taught probably the listeners so much about the play-by-play and uh yeah it's great to listen to your insight and obviously um good luck for the rest of the season and hopefully we can get you back on at some point thank you guys i love the passion this is what it's all this is what it's all about this is why we do what we do is because you guys love it so much and create all this content and um this is the the whole point of it is not fans on Twitter complaining that you didn't win the conference finals. Like this is, you know, you guys, are, Josh, uh, this, is, this is what loving a team is about. Yeah. We're, we're more of the realistic fan base is what I would say. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see you next time we're in on the causeway. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, Josh, how much of a insane episode was that? It was an absolute pleasure to speak to Sean. Um, obviously incredibly insightful. And it was great. He's a familiar voice to us. But as I mentioned, you know, we're more attuned to the League Pass experience and we are more attuned to the TV experience because that's how we consume our basketball. But I love radio broadcasts. Um, You know, I'm someone who grew up listening to a lot of kind of radio in my parents' car, listening to the sport on the radio. And I love the romantic stories about kind of American sports fans, certainly in Boston, really kind of uh, living on sports radio, especially in the kind of 70s and 80s. So major, major respect to uh, hearing a proper giant of that industry. I mean, to be fair, you were quite lucky that you got to listen to sports in the car when you were growing up. I mean, I had to listen to... uh country and western and shania twain so i mean i wasn't as lucky as you i thought you were uh, going to say the archers so it, uh, I, i'd take shania twain over that oh well, my dad used to love all this country stuff and it was yeah absolute uh absolute nightmare so anyway yeah no, it, it was amazing having him on and yeah so we had we do have obviously another guest as well which we are going to be talking to we've got loads of guests hopefully coming on the podcast um throughout the rest of this season now obviously i know we've had a little bit of a Again, at the start of the season, we said we're not going to have a lull this time. We're going to plough through all the time. 
but we had we, we had to have a little break for some for some reasons uh, some personal reasons but we are back again i think that's going to end up being our catchphrase where people are just going to take the piss out of us we are back six months later we are back so mm-hmm. it's, uh, <laughs> it's what it is we're in full swing <laughs> yeah anyway that is it that is it for another episode of the podcast obviously this is going to go out on video as well so if you don't already follow i will set up this bloody youtube which will be dedicated to the that uk Celtics podcast and the garden party um so you can go subscribe to it and you can see mine and josh's lovely faces uh, every wednesday which every wednesday is going to be the episode drop from that one so you guys voted on it so we're going to do what you say so yeah that is it for another episode until next time Peace.